Beyond Prisons. This is Jay and I'm the producer. This week I got to talk with Brian and Kim about prison slavery. Before we get started I wanted to share with you a couple of audio clips. Recently I spoke with members of Jailhouse Lawyers Speak and a member of the Free Alabama Movement about the recent case against the GEO Group and their use of prison slavery practices within an ICE detention facility that they operate as a private contractor. Here are the words of Bennu Hannibal Rahsun related to that case and the way in which society justifies prison slavery through academia and through public discourse. Okay, I wanted to point out something about that case. Mm-hmm. You know, in the art, there's an article out, and in it, uh, I think you sent me the article, and it's a quote from a professor from Northwestern University, and her name is Jacqueline Stevens, and um, she was talking about how the program does not meet the criteria for volunteer work on the labor law, but she she said that um, that prison labor has two purposes. She said one to punish the offender after they've been convicted of a crime. Mm-hmm. And the other one is to rehabilitate them. Well, that's coming from uh, the academic institution. This is coming from a professor at a prestigious university. But you see, even she's justifying the use of prison labor, uh, supposedly to punish a person and to rehabilitate them. Now, we live in a society where the 13th Amendment says that a person can be enslaved. And so, when you have this being taught at the academic level of a, of a institution of higher learning, that somehow this can uh, punish a person, you know, I would like for her to define, you know, what do you mean is punishment for a crime? How does a person who has a drug addiction be, how does this, this punishment, you know, fit into the crime itself. I just don't understand it. And then she said it's to rehabilitate a person. You know, if a person on um, prison labor, if a person comes in and let's say you have a person who has a, a skill or trade or whatnot, they have a drug addiction. How does free labor, forced labor, rehabilitate them? I don't understand that. And so when she makes, when you have people in these positions making these kind of statements, it just goes to show you the, how deeply rooted the problem is, and it shows you how deeply rooted society is being programmed uh, to accept this, 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 accept slavery as an accepted form of punishment for crime and a rehabilitative mechanism. And it's not that. It, it does not have anything to do with punishment for crime. It does not have anything to do with rehabilitation. It has everything to do with profit. Mm-hmm. So, and so it's just, um, it was amazing to see that. But again, it was good to see because it reveals uh, just how ingrained this stuff is in this culture, American society. And here are two members of Jailhouse Lawyers Speak discussing the connection between prison slavery, the 13th Amendment, and other cases against prison labor practices. I think one's getting more attention than the other when, like you said, the situation doesn't need to be separated, you know, because our situation and the federal situation and the uh, private-owned prison situation is all the same entity, you know. We're all under the same amendments and the same laws, you know, and, and if it gets separated like that, then eventually they'll break away, and then that's when the different 
litigation comes into effect and we don't get what we necessarily need and that's to be recognized. Um, one of the things, right, uh, when you when you address it as it relates to, you're absolutely correct. There has been less there has been less media attention uh, at play on this thing here as it relates to the 13th, and we definitely need to uh, put focus on that. It is it is actually enabled by the 13th. You know, um, I think before they even went to these um, uh, immigration detentions, people failed to realize that all of this started in state and federal facilities. So mm -hmm. by taking it to the immigration facilities. By taking them to the immigration facilities, well, let's put it like this, they don't open the door up for private detentions and for immigration detentions. And now we're learning also it's spreading on out now to things like house arrest, probation, you know, probation and parole, privatization of that. And they even have these individuals working on the uh, private, private companies, you know, uh, to pay off these outstanding restitution fees now. So all of this is definitely connected and is definitely all enabled by the 13th, and it only spells a bigger picture that America still condones slavery. There's no way around it. It just, it just, it just shows it. It highlights it that we still have a slavery issue in this country. You know, and the only thing that separates us differently from other countries is that is that the United States actually has it legalized. You know, it's actually in their constitution. You know, that's what that's what distinguishes this particular industrialized country from other countries. So uh, I applaud you for making sure that uh, the 13th stage front and center and that the issues are not disconnected because we do know. They will try to disconnect the issue, one issue, so they don't have to address another issue. When we all know it's all one issue. For the second half of our episode this week, um, we're talking with our wonderful producer, Jay Ware. How you doing, Jay? I'm good, Kim and Brian. How are you? Doing well. Hanging out. Doing good. Jay is, like I said, the producer of the podcast. He's a good friend of ours. He's Jay Beware on Twitter. Um, and he, we all got to know Jay around the September 9th prison strike because he was one of the people running the iWalk Twitter account, which was responsible for disseminating a lot of information and communications on the prison strikes going on around the country. Um, so we wanted to talk to Jay uh, a little bit about the issue of prison slavery and prison labor. Um, and the 13th Amendment following our conversation with Crystal Roundtree. And, um, you know, I guess maybe a good place to start, Jay, would be if you could talk a little bit about sort of the historical connections uh, between prison slavery today and um, slavery of around the time of the Civil War and before. Yeah, so I think it's really important to look at this as a continuum. Often history sort of treats it as... Uh, these completely disjointed and disconnected things that that quote unquote prison slavery as the as the media would like to always put quotes around it um, and, and history would as well I think is something different and really that it's a type of labor that is based in rehabilitation or at some points uh, has a punitive aspect to it and that those things are okay and it's okay, and, and, and some people will argue that it's good, right? That it's good to have prisoners working. Right. And, and I think that there's, there's certain aspects of that that are true, because I think that you have a ton of time, obviously, when you're in prison. All you have is time. And I think that, obviously, people in prison generally want to be productive with that time, because it helps the time go by. 
but right. I think that the the issue around it is primarily sort of the racial history of it as well as the economic implications of it. And I think that those two pieces are really important. In terms of the history, I think it's really important to understand that prison slavery today is a direct vestige of slavery pre-Civil War. And that that distinction really happened like right away. So the 13th Amendment says that people can't be enslaved except for as punishment of a crime. And while there's different arguments about what that meant, what it does is it really says that it's really an admission by the state that prison in itself is is tied to slavery. Um, and it's and it's also, you know, it's been called a loophole. I think some people take uh, issue with that. But what it is is it it became how it's been used historically is that um, judges have used it to uphold the authority of the state to make people work for nothing. And that is still done today. So I think that, you know, that really right after slavery, obviously you had convict leasing, as well as outside of prisons, you had systems of sharecropping and debt peonage. And all of these things were about devaluing black labor um, and about also control because what became an immediate response um, after people were, you know, quote, after freedom came, quote unquote, was that basically they started using criminality mm-hmm. as a way to, to replace that or, or a new way to basically criminalizing blackness. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that history continued. So, you know, we had the, the end, the abolition of, you know, sort of Southern slavery, as it was known before the Civil War. Then you had the quote-unquote abolition of convict leasing. But still to this day, you have, you know, close to 2.5 million people incarcerated in some form or another. And they're all subjected to forms of labor that is unpaid or paid just like really pathetic amounts of money. And one of the things that people also don't understand is that they that people who are incarcerated don't lose their expenses. It's not like you're just in prison and your life is you have nothing to worry about financially. Right. Um, and I think that's that's true for them within prison in terms of getting things that they actually need, but it's also true for their families which don't go away because they're incarcerated. And so that's just kind of a quick you know, over the top view of it. Can you talk a little bit about the ways that labor is forced in prison? Um, you know, I think some people would take for granted that if you're in prison, you know, maybe there's these work programs where you don't get paid very much, but if you don't feel like being exploited, you know, maybe you just don't work then. But can we talk about like what prison labor um, is actually like and how it fits into the functioning and like the system of the prison itself? Yeah. So, I mean, these are critical points. And I think that, um, you know, beyond the 13th Amendment, there's this thing that's less talked about, which is called the housekeeping exception, which basically includes people that are not just 
folks that are convicted, you know, felons in prison, but also people who are in jail awaiting trial, um, also people who are immigrants in detention for immigration issues. And all of those people are required to labor for, for nothing or for, again, like maybe a dollar a day in order to basically just maintain the cleanliness of the facility, the, um, to, to serve food to other prisoners, to do, um, they do things like groundskeeping work mm-hmm. within the facility, cleaning bathrooms, uh, you know, mopping floors. So the, this idea is sort of based in this sort of like, well, if you're imprisoned or if you're in jail, the least you can do is clean up after yourself which is just sort of absurd, I think, right. because, you know, the, the reality, you don't choose to be there, you can't leave. And then I think back to your point on, on what, you know, what does forced mean? So forced means that people are threatened with torture and are subjected to torture if they don't do it. And that can include from a, through the state's own justification, putting people in solitary confinement if they don't participate in it. You know, it can also include abuse, obviously, from corrections officers, not not legally. But one of the difficult things about being incarcerated, of course, is that you have quote unquote rights. But what is your remedy to resolve them? How do you prove that your rights were violated by the state um, when they have right. all the control and all the power in the situation and their word will always be taken uh, above yours, basically, in a court of law or in some sort of administrative hearing that you might have. And so, you know, for instance, in the example of the people who participated in the prison strike, Brian and Kim, we all know that most of the people who were prominent activists, in, incarcerated and activists during the prison strike, are now in solitary confinement and have been there since basically the start of the strike. Yeah, and some um, in other prisons, you know, they can yeah. move around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you talk about people like Kinetic Justice or Ben right. Yu or from the Free Alabama movement, um, people that were involved in the Kinross uprising, people even in like Portland, there were some uh, anarchist prisoners that were involved. Mm-hmm. Zero was one of the names of one of them that I remember. And then, uh, you know, down in, you know, the Carolinas, I know jailhouse lawyers speak representatives and they're actually often incarcerated just for advocating for the rights of other people not even necessarily for um for prison strike activity but just literally for standing up for other people's rights and helping to write helping them to write um you know complaints or writs can get them thrown in uh the hole so right i think too you know it's important to know uh that that people can lose good time credits um which is kind of like also an insidious punishment uh for refusing to work and good time credits are are days off of your sentence it's a you know small uh movement toward a a potentially earlier release and um if you refuse to work those can be withheld from you um and then going going off what you were saying before too i think the other thing to really drive home is that in you know almost all of these cases these facilities cannot function without um the forced labor uh, and the exploited labor of incarcerated people. Um, yeah. You know, prisons are and jails are already incredibly expensive. 
facilities to run and to staff and to maintain. And they save a lot on overhead by exploiting um, the labor of incarcerated people. So I think that's, that's another thing to point out. Yeah, it absolutely is. And as you said that, it, I was reminded of something I read on Twitter earlier today, which was an excerpt from um, Hillary Clinton's book, where she talked about how they had incarcerated labor at the Arkansas State House when she was there, at the governor's mansion, and, um, and that she would frequently send back prisoners who weren't doing a good job. And, you know, I thought about like how, and, and I, I saw recently there was a tweet storm from um, Sam from um, mm -hmm. Campaign Zero talking about this in Louisiana as well. Yeah. You know, and just about how, how incarcerated people are, their labor, right, is used not, not just in prisons, um, and not just within private enterprise, as we'll talk about more as well, I'm sure. But it's also used to help make other institutions of government run more, you know, quote unquote, affordably. And I think that all of those things are really sick vestiges of slavery. And I think that the, the, the good time piece is critical, Brian, you know, because, again, tying back to the way that that, you know, even if you think about indentured servitude, which was different than slavery, right? But it was still a form of, of forced labor um, and it's still a form of unpaid labor. You, you had like a certain period of time that you had to do, right? And then, and then you got your freedom. Well, if, you're, if your freedom is based upon your behavior all the time and, and people can arbitrarily decide whether your behavior is good or bad, and we've seen this with, you know, members of the Black Liberation movements uh, in the 70s that a lot of times they've finished their sentences, but they're still not released. And I think that that is, a, you know, this kind of another sick way, right, in which the state can just sort of, right. you know, dictate this endless. I mean, you're just at you're just at their mercy always. And obviously, you know, there are people like Ben Yu and Kinetic that that constantly advocate that there needs to be mass work stoppages to combat this. And I think that makes sense because their, their argument is that basically these institutions will no longer be able to function if we can keep this up. But I think that the, the danger, right, is that anybody who's participating in that activity faces just the most brutal forms of, of you know, repression. So... Uh, and to that point, I, I think uh, beyond just moving people to isolation or to further isolation to the shoe uh, or the hole um, or denying them good time is also uh, the problem that we have where people who refuse to work because um, who refuse to work are not reclassified in a timely fashion. So you can, and, and this is different than earning good time on your, uh, on your sentence, right? So that technically would reduce uh, your sentence, right? By X number of days or weeks or months uh, that you accumulate, but being reclassified within, you know, the facility itself so that you can earn 
quote unquote privileges, right? So mm -hmm. if you move from one unit to another unit where you are, you know, allowed to go to the yard or you have workout facilities or you have, you know, whatever privileges they deem are, you know, privileges, uh, including things like honor visits and what have you. That there are thousands of ways in which work, right, and unpaid work or minimally paid work is forced on people uh, inside, right? Um, but you also raised another issue, and I want to go back to this a little bit, because uh, the economic part of it is always emphasized, right? That this cost, um, you know, that, that the cost savings to the prison, to the facility are, are huge, right? Uh, by using, you know, the labor there, right? Right. But there's also this issue that we have, um, and I want to think about this a little bit more, where, you know, when people hear the conversation around, you know, prison labor, they have this, or, or what I've heard, I'll put it this way, what I hear from people oftentimes is that, you know, this assumption that you know, there are just jobs laying around and, you know, people are just refusing to work. But the jobs or jobs programs are very few and a number of jobs available don't match the number of people who are incarcerated, mm -hmm. right? So there's a huge gap between these two, um, these two things. So then it becomes, you know, or at least one of the questions that I'm thinking about is that there's something else going on here, right? Because if it's, it's not just about having everybody who's in prison working, because it's not, it's about having certain groups of people working and they use the work as punishment uh, as on top of the already existing punishment of incarceration. So mm -hmm. there seems, at least in my mind, to be something else at work here, right? Because this isn't just about cost savings. It's more, as you pointed out earlier, about control and about power. And that this is a really important part of the overall, you know, um, the overall problem of prison labor, right? That I think um, we might talk about a little bit more. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely do. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things that you brought up, right, is this idea of it, it gets treated as though, you know, these jobs are privileges. The reality is everybody in prison, for the most part, wants a job. And they want to be paid more for their job. And there have been, there've been legal suits and things like that to try to get uh, prisoners minimum wage that are always shot down under the guise that it's not real work and they're not real employees. And so they don't have the protections of the Free Labor Standards Act. The other part of it, too, is like the there are quote unquote good jobs, right, that people really do want. Um, when they're in prison because they could learn a trade or they could learn a skill or there are jobs, right, where you might get to go out or you might be able to leave the prison to do something. And that obviously feels like a little taste of freedom. At the heart of it, I think that a big part of my issue with it, right, and I think a part of a lot of the incarcerated activists issue with it is I'm still a human being and my labor is still valuable. You're actually extracting more profit off of my work 
than you would be if I was doing this outside of prison. And I still have to pay for things for my family. The, the phone rates that I have to pay are jacked up. The commissary rates are jacked up. So there's no element of a free exchange. And you have these sort of combating sides of if I don't work, then I'm going to face some form of torture, you know, or different forms of punishment. And, you know, if I do work, I'm going to be exploited in another way. So, so that creates a dynamic where the conditions are really the same as those who have someone who is enslaved. There is no free way for them to engage in the use of their own labor beyond the conditions of that enslavement. One of the things that I thought was interesting about the Geo Group case that I covered for Shadowproof was about how, you know, they used this thing called the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And they got a judge to basically say, like, prison labor is, is slavery as defined by the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And at the moment that that was done, as well as the judge said, yeah, this can be a class action lawsuit and 60,000 people can participate in the class. Geo Group actually appealed it to a circuit court before the decision was even rendered under this clause that like, hey, if you allow this to happen, it could disrupt our whole ability to run our uh, run private prisons, basically. And, and using a lot of arguments, basically like, hey, the state's been doing this forever and they say it's perfectly fine. And I think that what's interesting there is is one that you actually got some judges or a judge at this point to really recognize that based upon law that's not the 13th Amendment and not the housekeeping exception, but looking at this Trafficking Victims Protection Act can say that, that yeah, private prisons are engaging in a process that looks a lot like human trafficking. And you kind of have to argue with me to say that it's not. I think that that is really interesting. And, and in that case they've talked a lot about these different dynamics right about like yeah. there's no such thing as voluntary work within a prison right, right. <laughs> and, and I think too like on the subject of of control you know getting back to what Kim said a little bit yeah. I think it's important to to think about this as a system too and, and larger than when you're incarcerated specifically but you know once you're convicted and you, you know if you get out of prison then your labor is still, you know, criminalized. Um, your your labor options are severely limited, and you know that has all kinds of effects on the rest of your life, on your ability to get health care, on your ability to find housing, um, and so and you know and oftentimes drives people back uh, into the system and condemns their whole families. And and I just think you know, yeah. Go ahead, Kim. Were you going to say something? Yeah, I mean, I, I this is one of the things that just frustrates me. Uh, to no end is, you know, um, many of the programs programs uh, that are set up in prison do not map against the kind of jobs that would be available to someone not in prison, right? Yep. So on the outside. So for example, and I'll use um, Vaughn as an yep. example. Um, Vaughn has a program, you know, where they train prisoners, uh, to do braille and those prisoners create braille books and what have you right now, if you look 
for a job in Braille outside of prison, it's not like there's hundreds or even thousands of jobs in this field available to people, like anybody. (laughs) So, you know, another program, um, you know, for example, would be uh, where the car repairs are being done by people in prison, right? So, you know, dealerships set up contracts with, you know, their local prison, you know, a bunch of cars are brought in. Uh, these could be, you know, lease vehicles or fleet vehicles or what have you. Um, and the prisoners are the ones doing the work. Now, when you think about that in the context of what is happening in the broader labor market and where, you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of hysteria, um, you know, around, you know, uh, certain people taking our jobs, yep. uh, if you will, you know, this never becomes part of the conversation, right? So it's out in the open, but it's obscured, right? It's it's the secret that's right there in front of you. Um, and, and that is, again, undermining, right, if, if we want to start getting technical about it, undermining not only the wages, but the ability of people on the outside to get work, including formerly incarcerated people. Because if, if a company can pay via this contract, you know, um, two to $3 an hour, and that's a lot, that's high. Those are high wages. If you're in prison um, to, you know, 15 people who are in this, job program to fix cars why the hell would they pay anyone 17 or 25 dollars to do it outside you're not you're not like that the the numbers just don't work and this again let's it gets left out of the conversation and you know it, it would be nice if we started taking um not just politicians uh you know to task on this but anyone else who's really talking about you know prison labor um without providing, you know, a robust picture of yeah. this. Um, another issue, and I, I, I won't go on much longer, um, that you brought up, Jay, was about, you know, extracting more profit uh, from uh, prisoners, you know, and things like phone rates and commissary rates and, and things like that. And the thing that, you know, the thing that I know from uh, my own personal experience, but from, you know, talking to a lot of other people uh, with incarcerated uh, loved ones is that, you know, the wages that they earn if they have a job are never enough to actually pay for things like commissary. Yep. They're never enough, you know? Yep. So the the burden of that gets offloaded onto, you know, people on the outside, people who, before their loved one went to prison, more than likely were already economically disadvantaged. So this places yet another, you know, burden, economic burden on them, right? And there's, I mean, there's just no way if you're earning 25 cents an hour that you can buy anything at commissary, right? I mean, some of the cheaper items may cost $2, Right. So it's like if you're yep. paying two dollars for a package of ramen, right there, you would have to work, what, eight hours to get one package. Yeah. Right. Yep. You know, like a full day to get one package of ramen. Like yep. this is this is obscene. Right. And, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Say something. <laughs> I'll respond to a couple of things you said there, Kim, because I think they make some great points. And I think 
um, the first about the sort of labor aspect and the, and really the it's one of the great failures of the labor movement today. I think you know I, I think that historically you know and Du Bois talks about this obviously of sort of the the white workers inability to recognize that it's it's class condition and it's shared class condition with with people of color with black people and it's inability to to sort of fight for uh, working class you know, to fight for health, universal health care, to fight for free college, to fight for living wages for all, to fight for housing, you know, all of these things that a lot of countries actually have because they have a working class that's more unified than ours. We don't have because the white worker will shade towards these sort of, these these petty privileges. And I think that one of the things that happens within the labor movement, and I saw this working with IWOC, is we couldn't get labor unions to come out in support of the prison strike. You know, the, the IWW was really the only one that I can think of that did. And, you know, they were, they were trying to talk to them. Um, but you, because, and, and part of the reason why, and I think it's important to acknowledge this, is that the labor unions do invite corrections officers into their movement. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so again, like you see this sort of, if you, if you use a, a historical perspective, right. And think back to, to real slavery times, right. The, the white worker would align with the slave owner. They would align with the, um, they would take positions to be um, overseers and things like that. And, and they would use this sort of, this racial privilege, despite being still in many cases, extremely poor. And that, that was enough, right? This psychological idea of I'm better than somebody else was enough for them to give up all that could be achieved through true solidarity. And I think that that's, you're exactly right in terms of looking at, you know, the fight for 15, should support prison labor because the reality is that only by equalizing those wages, only by allowing prison workers to be paid what people are paid outside of prison can you advocate for higher wages for everybody. Because like you said, it if people can quote unquote, and they use this term insourcing, right? Of, mm -hmm. of sending labor into prisons or sending it into detention centers, then you know, then they don't have to outsource. So they don't have to say that they're sending it to Mexico or China. And they actually, in many cases, get to say this is made in America mm -hmm. um, and not say, oh, but it was made for 20 cents an hour by somebody who's incarcerated in Alabama um, mm -hmm. or, or Minnesota. And it's not as though that, you know, labor, prison labor conditions are terrible everywhere. There are a certain number of states where prisoners are paid nothing, but but they're really bad wherever there. There's no prisoners that are making minimum wage, um, and I think that the 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 point you make about those jobs is really important. And then the other point you make about and and this is something that the Free Alabama Movement talks about a lot is that prison jobs are usually not jobs that you will find on the outside. You know, for instance, they'll use the example of license plates, um, which is sort of the generic thing that people think about in terms of prison labor. But there are no license plate factories that aren't in prisons, you know. Mm -hmm. And so 
I learned how to make license plates, but that job is not, those skills that I learned are not transferable to anything on the outside. And I think the other piece, and I want to get back to this just briefly, is about rehabilitation, right? And and so my conversation with Ben Yu, he really, I thought, shot a great hole in this argument, which is just that what is rehabilitative about prison labor? And he used the example, let's say somebody is in jail for, let's say they're in jail for, it really doesn't matter if they're in jail for a sex crime or if they're in jail for a, a drug crime or, or even, you know, a murder. What is it about making license plates that is going to help them change whatever behavior led them to get into prison. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, there's there's a real disconnect psychologically there. The idea that, um, it, and let's go back to drug problem. So somebody has a problem with substance abuse, right? And he gave the example, I think, of like a carpenter or some type of um, blue collar worker with blue collar skills who develops... Uh, an opioid addiction and ends up committing crimes that are either directly related to the drug and be drug crimes, or as we know, a lot of times, quote unquote, violent offenses like burglary um, or, you know, robbing something with a weapon is actually can still be connected to drugs, right? Because, you know, if you don't have money, you don't have access to money. A lot of times how you get it is by, is by stealing something. And, And so None of those things, right? That that person who has that drug issue, they they have a disease, right? They have they have something that that needs mental health care, that needs, um, you know, they need they need a program to help them with their addiction. They need resources. They may need free. They may need health care. You know, they may be self medicating. All of those things are possibilities. Um, they may right. just be. They may not have any opportunity for any jobs as I think we've all seen a lot, right? And so then using drugs is just how they make the time go by because they just, they can't figure out how to contribute, right? And so there's nothing really about any of those situations where learning how to press a license plate is going to, you know, create this aha moment for somebody or give them a skill that's really going to make a difference for them in the real world. Um, Yeah, it's like, it's like going back to our Angela Davis episode where we're talking about sort of the, the puritanical bullshit that yeah. ingrained, you know, into mm-hmm. the ideology of the prison and this idea that like, you know, we just need, these are idle hands uh, and, you know, they need to be put to work, you know, doing whatever it is. It doesn't really matter. It's the work, it's the labor that will save them. Um, and it's got no grounding in the real world. Like you said, Jay, um, and in addition to that, I mean, it's also, you know, it, not just the, the Quaker values that informed, you know, these early prison labor uh, programs, camps and what have you, but also, you know, the Protestant work ethic, which informs it and on down the line. But you also get, you know, this thing, and uh, I don't want to uh, keep harping on this, you know, that there aren't enough jobs for everybody who's locked up. There just aren't. And people in prison can lose those jobs if they're in a job program for whatever reason, right? So at any moment and at any time, which also creates consequences, you know, for them 
as you both have pointed out uh, previously in terms of either, you know, uh, torture um, through increased isolation or losing, you know, good time uh, and what have you. But, you know, there are also job programs get um, used in order to further exploit prisoners um, through, you know, the, the COs will oftentimes say, okay, well, you know, we're going to get you a job or whatever, um, or your counselor uh, will say, okay, we're going to try to set you up, you know, with this job. And they target certain people to do certain mm -hmm. work because mm -hmm. they want to use those people as, you know, informants or yep. in other ways, right? Yep. And I think that this is also an important you know, point uh, within the, you know, the broader context of how bodies are getting used uh, inside of prison, you know, and this breaks down along racial lines, oftentimes, because yep. there are jobs that, you know, um, are seen at on the inside, uh, as being more valuable, and where you know, okay, if I have x job, I can do you know, X, Y, and Z, you're give, afforded right. a certain amount of freedom on the inside, right? Um, and that doesn't mean like going outside to work at, you know, the governor's mansion, uh, sure. and what have you or working on a college campus, which happens. And that's another point. You yeah, know, that's we, real. We can discuss, um, you know, down the line. But, you know, it, as you said, that this isn't rehabilitative, right? If anything, what this, the message that people get is that, making you work is punishment, right? Making yep. you work is punishment. That there's nothing, you know, um, it, it, wonderful in, in work, that work is punishment for your crime, right? Yep. And that we're going to force you to do this, you know, shitty work that isn't really going to benefit you in here or out there. You can't pay your fines with the kind of work that you're getting. The experience that you're getting, while you know, many people love to do photo opportunities and you know, talk about how great their uh, prison job program is and how they're helping people, it doesn't actually mean anything for them once they get outside because most of these companies would not hire someone with a record. Right. And that also needs to be said. They will hire you if you are in prison, but they will never hire you. And I, technically, we know that that's not what they're doing. Right. Um, but if you walked in off the street with, you know, a felony conviction on your record, they're not going to accept, you know, and unless you're in one of the cities with ban the box. But, you know, ban the box is is not a panacea, right? No, it right, it's not enough. It, it doesn't prevent the prospective employer from denying your application once the application is submitted, right? Yeah, All it right. says is basically that, you know, they're not going to ask that question on the application. It doesn't mean that, you know, in a second, third, fourth interview or what have you, whatever setup they have, um, they can't deny you work, right? So. Yeah. There's so many things connected with work and, you know, uh, in our identities, right? Yeah. As, as people in this country, in this society specifically, the first thing you say to someone, you know, or ask someone if you're out somewhere, oh, what do you do for a living, right? And that, that question 
is, you know, so loaded, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's just, there's so many things associated with that. And for someone, you know, with a, with a felony conviction, that that's, I mean, the answering of that question is really, you know, is a challenge, right? Yep. Um, and I just want us to, to think about that um, a little bit as well. And uh, there was another point. Um, oh, when you talked about the geo group, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, we're talking about, you know, uh, how private prisons operate. Um, one of the things that I, you know, want us uh, to talk about a little bit more is that this isn't just, you know, about private prisons because state facilities do this all the time. Absolutely. Right? So the, the, the state facilities yeah. that are operating, you know, in Alabama, in Pennsylvania, Delaware, California, whatever, um, the, this represents much of what constitutes, you know, the, the use of prison labor. And that private prisons, you know, are a much smaller part of that bigger pie. Definitely. Um, yeah. You know, people just think that, okay, well, let's just get rid of private prisons. I'm okay with that, right? But private prisons isn't, you know, getting rid of private prisons doesn't eliminate the problem of prison labor because, you know, it's like as you find through um, these various actions, right, whether it was the, the September 9th prison strike or whatever, a lot of these facilities grind to a halt, right? Yeah. And... <laughs> And, and they can't operate without, you know, prison labor. So when we hear things like, oh, we need to increase, you know, the number of staff or we need to hire more, you know, more people. Okay, what are these people being hired to do if much of the work is being done by prisoners? Yeah. What is, what is their function, you know? And I don't know. I, I yeah, just have more control. questions than I have answers here, uh, Jay and Brian. So Totally. Yeah, no. Those are all good. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, I was wondering, you know, um, I feel like this brings us to another point um, that I was wondering if you could talk about a little bit, which is resistance. You know, we've had the September 9th labor strikes. We have um, the March coming up in August. And I was just wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, you know, the movement, the resistance movement against prison slavery, you know, both inside and outside. And if you could maybe talk, you know, I don't want to say like the parallels to slavery, because that would imply that they're on separate tracks. But, um, you know, the connection to uh, the importance of labor resistance during yeah. the Civil War period. One of the things that's most relevant, I think, for the prison strike, and in thinking about imagining its most powerful incarnation is to actually think about the Civil War. And Du Bois really lays this out beautifully in Black Reconstruction. Um, and in talking about how the Civil War was not decided by the Union or by the Union's belief against slavery, because the Union was actually, especially through, throughout most of the Civil War, it was their preference to maintain slavery and just bring the union back together. And so what really changed the civil war was a general strike, as Du Bois calls it, of black labor in the South, meaning that most of the slave, the most of the people who ran plantations in terms of control, right? The, 
the overseers, the not the slave owners themselves, obviously, because they didn't fight, but the people, the other white people who helped maintain slavery, they had to go fight in the Confederacy because they, they had to draft such a huge portion of their um, of their population to fight. And so the enslaved people basically said, you know, at a certain point, like, we're getting out of here and there's not enough people to stop us anymore. And a, a mass movement, hundreds of thousands of black people in the South basically just, just rejected their enslavement and kept trying to go to the union actually and say, hey, let us fight for you, let us work alongside you. And the union for the most part kept saying, no, you're contraband um, and you must return to your plantation. And then a few generals and colonels started to actually not push them away. And, and that was only drawn, you know, created by the enslaved people themselves just continuing to say, we're not going anywhere, we're not going back. Um, and we'll just build these tent cities basically around wherever Union armies were constructed. And there was some really actually for the time, and I want to caveat that, um, progressive stuff that happened as certain generals and colonels actually developed programs and began to involve the Black people that were coming to them in different forms of support for the Union, and eventually they became armed and became soldiers as well. And so all of that movement, right, all of that Black resistance during the Civil War are the critical pieces that changed, that turned the tide. Um, and I think that's really a historical narrative that gets lost a lot, a lot of time on purpose. Definitely. Um, but it's, it's really, when you see it laid out, it's really obvious. And especially when you, you read things like, you know, conversations between uh, Lincoln and Horace Greeley within a year before Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation saying things like, you know, my goal is to restore the Union and keep slavery. And that's not a direct quote, but it's definitely a paraphrase. And so, you know, and you think about that in the modern context of, um, of a prison strike, right? And, you know, we can see that what happened this past year is that 24,000 at sort of the kind of most widely accepted estimate. I know that, Brian, you looked at larger numbers in terms of prisons that were just shut down because a lot of them shut down just prepping for the strike, yeah. um, just knowing that it was going to happen, which still creates the same impact because if nobody's working, if everybody's on lockdown, nobody's working, you know, it's the same basic impact as whether people mm -hmm. are striking or not. And so when you think about that and you think about the power of that, if more and more people, I mean, 24,000 is a very small percentage of 2.5 million, right? Mm -hmm. And so we know that that, that basically it was, a, it was this moment that created a lot of attention to prison abolition, a lot of attention to prison slavery. And, and I think it, spur, it is a continuation of resistance, right? Because there's always prison resistance. I don't think right. that it's ever fair to say that there's a period of time where it's not going on. It's always going on in different ways. Um, and I think, honestly, and, I, and you know, Kim, I'm sure, knows this, whether this is accurate or not, better than I do. But honestly, I do look at Vaughn 
as a continuation of that, because I think that the prison strike itself was a completely nonviolent attempt, right? And it was totally quashed and repressed. And I think that when you take away people's ability to to raise their voices nonviolently, the only option that remains is for right. them to rebel, really. Um, right. And I think that that part shouldn't be lost, I think. You know, I mean, I know that there was a, there were a ton of, um, you know, and I don't want to get deep into Vaughn, but it, obviously it's it's current because they just released the report, which was, you know, just total hackery about, mm-hmm. um, you know, what the causes were being not enough staff and not enough, too much overtime, um, basically for corrections officers, which... Mm-hmm also connects to the recent reports out of California that it costs like $76,000 a year to incarcerate someone there um, because of how much they're paying corrections officers, basically, and how many corrections officers they have now. Mm -hmm. Um, The march is the next step for the people who were involved in the prison strike. A lot of the organizers, you know, they look at the march as an ability to bring more awareness to the movement outside because you have to have that as well. I mean, I think one of my, the person, one of the personal things that I struggle with, right. Is like knowing that those of us who are prison abolitionists, those of us who are advocates, we're never doing enough on the outside to raise the awareness of what's going on. Um, And, you know, I I think that we try, right. But we just, we don't have the material conditions that people do inside. Um, and I think, you know, what my most recent conversation with Ben Yu, he talked about how one for the, the people, the immigrants that are suing uh, geo group that, you know, they should also be extracting their labor for the system as they're suing. Right. Like, and he, and he actually said their lawyer should be recommending that. Right. If, if the lawyer believes what's going on is a violation of federal law, then why wouldn't he just tell them not to work anymore? Um, and I think, you know, obviously a lot of the people that are involved in that case are formerly incarcerated there. So they're not still there, but I think that that's an interesting thing. I think that hunger strikes are also an important aspect and, you know, you just looked at what happened in uh, Palestine, where they had a very mm-hmm. successful hunger strike. I feel like hunger strikes in America are so hard um, because they'll force feed you. They mm-hmm. will. I mean, there, there was one that went on in Mississippi earlier this year. And they wouldn't the state had a policy that they won't recognize a hunger strike until somebody's been on it for like 16 days or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just like. It's like, how disgusting is that? Like you have to, you have to strike, you have to refuse eating for long enough to probably kill yourself before somebody will recognize that you're on a hunger strike. And I think that, you know, the the hard part is that you're always against just this overwhelming power and control of the state to the people that are incarcerated that resist. I mean, I don't know how anyone can not be moved by what they do. Um, Because I think that, you know, you just face every, you know, it's the most fascist environment that any of us can imagine. Um, And, and yet they stand up to it and, Mm. um, and they stand up to it knowing that they're going to be brutally punished for it. But that just tells you how bad it is, right? If people are willing, if 24,000 people 
are willing to risk torture to to raise their voices against something, um, then I think that that's that's a strong message right there. And I think in terms of the future, I think there will be more labor strikes. I think there will be more rebellions. There will be more hunger strikes. We've seen a lot of it this year, really. It just hasn't been reported as much. But, uh, you know, all of that is going to continue. And I'll be interested to see what happens in August this year. You know, Black August is always a month of resistance for incarcerated people, you know, which is a connection back to George Jackson. That'll be interesting along with the march, because I know that people inside are are planning actions as well. Um, You know, and obviously I don't I don't know much about what those are, nor would I want to tip their sort of tactical hands. But, you know, I really hope that the march is a very successful event. I think it's really I'm always kind of disgusted by how few people on the outside really care about this on a, a serious level beyond you know, the, the types of reforms that you guys have talked about, uh, you know, over the course of the series. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I a uh, number of things that, that I'm thinking and, you know, uh, the first one and I jotted my uh, a note to myself here uh, so that I wouldn't forget it, um, it has to do with, you know, your points about what happened at Vaughn and the, uh, and the report that just came out. And the one thing that, you know, came to mind when I read that um, report uh, <laughs> were the words of uh, Margot Harry. Uh, and she wrote a wonderful um, book based on her piece uh, back in, I think it was 1986, 1987, it came out um, called Attention Move, This is America. Um, and she said that, you know, in describing what happened in the aftermath of the bombing of the homes on Osage Avenue. So mm-hmm. there's more than one way to whitewash an investigation, right? Mm-hmm. So you can give the appearance that you're doing, conducting an investigation, but we already knew the conclusions. And I actually outlined sure. those, not just on Twitter, um, sure. long before an investigation was announced. The investigation was happening at the minute that that, you know, quote unquote, rebellion started, yeah. right? Um, you know, and that aside, um, you know, you've brought up, uh, and, and you've gone back to Du Bois and, you know, Du Bois is someone that, um, I, I've looked to, uh, over the years, uh, for, you know, wisdom, insight on, on, on the history of what we're dealing with today and looking at it on a continuum, as you pointed out. And one thing, um, that I will, you know, encourage folks to read of Du Bois uh, is some notes on Negro crime, particularly in Georgia. Um, And this is one of the papers published under um, the Atlanta papers uh, that he, that he published in 1904. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'll just read a a quick excerpt uh, on this because he's talking about, you know, prison and prison labor under, under the convict leasing system in the South. And he says, quote, the result of this was a sudden large increase in the apparent criminal population in the southern states. An increase so large that there was no way for the state to house it or watch over it, even had the state wished to. And the state did not wish to. Throughout the South, laws were immediately passed authorizing public officials to lease the labor of convicts to the highest bidder. The lessee then took charge of the convicts work them as he wished under the nominal control of the state. 
Thus, a new slavery, a slave trade was established, right? End quote. Um, And, you know, there's... that paper right there really sheds light and, and places this in um, in that historical timeline in a way that I very few um, historical accounts of you know that time um, have been able to achieve because it's so clear. Yep, it's very uh, specific, right? And there's so many parallels. Right. So we're not saying these things are exactly alike. We're saying that, you know, they inform one another and that there is uh, there there's a through line that we can draw from, you know, then up until now. And the resistance piece of it, um, you know, is one of those things that really um, stands out for me because, you know, as you said, people are willing to resist knowing that they will face, you know, um, some serious consequences. Right. And they do it anyway, right? And while, you know, it, it's easy for us outside to say, well, you know, it's um, it, how can there not be solidarity with, you know, with, with prisoners? And I, I know from talking to a lot of people um, inside that it, it can be difficult. <laughs> It yeah. can be difficult to express solidarity because they, the iron fist of the state, you know, via their COs and, you know, their very repressive um, rules and, and what have you, um, makes it so that people want to distance themselves from what they consider to be the troublemakers on the inside, right? Even yeah. if they recognize you know, that the state is this, you know, really horrible, oppressive thing, right, that they don't want to be on the side of, that it makes their life really difficult. Because when, you know, when a facility gets wind of, you know, any hint of resistance, they will concoct any kind of nonsense just to crack down on other people, even if those people had nothing to do with the resistance movement internally, right? Yeah. So yeah. And they use that as a way to shut down any further resistance and to intimidate people who may not have been part of the movement, but who they can exploit, right? So there's yeah. so many different ways in which this operates. And I, I want um, I want to give, you know, folks a, a, as robust um, an understanding of this as we possibly can in this short time that, that we have available to us, you know, for, for this conversation um, so that they don't walk away thinking that, you know, it's like, okay, well, this is a really kind of clear cut and simple thing because it, it's not. If people are yeah. wrestling and and they're you know they're wrestling with this because it, it's really difficult and you know if you have if you have a case if your case is coming up you know for in in front of the court if there are other you know circumstances happening um in your life all of that stuff factors in right yeah. so you know it's not just that people inside are like okay everybody's on board um and, and, and they're not. I mean, it would be, you know, I, I'm not going to say right. it would be great if they were, because we know that movements 
don't require everybody to be on board that (laughs) you can have a small number of people having a huge impact, right? Which may encourage or embolden other people um, who are afraid and rightfully so, because I think that speaking to that fear is an important part of this broader conversation because, you know, even the people who are participating, um, actively participating and organizing inside, um, do express, you know, fear. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, it's like, of course they do because they're human beings, right? Absolutely. That's all really good. And, and you know, I want to just clarify for a second, like the, the solidarity that I think needs to have more is on the, on the outside, um, you know, not, not so, I mean, obviously it's great, like you say, if, if more prisoners are involved, but there's so many barriers and they face so much repression and violence, like we shouldn't be asking that of them. Um, right. I'm sorry. I just, I wanted to, I, I think the solidarity from the outside piece is important. I don't, I don't think it should overshadow in any way the resistance and the efforts of people on the inside. But, you know, I, I do think that there are some people who are listening who are wondering, you know, how can we get involved or how can we help? Uh, because it is a tremendous burden uh, for incarcerated people to bear on their own. Um, I think one of the things that you brought up that I think is a really great point is the the point about the fight for 15. So I really appreciate that. Um, I also think, uh, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit um, about just briefly during the September, the, sorry, during the September 9th labor strikes, what people were doing on the outside that was effective. Um, I'm thinking particularly of like the phones apps. Yep. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. And I, and I want to say too, like, this is something that I think that our social media age like fails in because I think people are afraid to pick up the phone. And I think that mm-hmm. one of the the important things to do, right, is do call-ins and to make sure that the state knows that as many people are watching their behavior as uh, as possible. Um, And I know, like, right now that prison abolition, prisoner solidarity is doing some phone zaps about Rashid Johnson, who's a a prison activist that um, has had his his typewriter stolen, I think, and some of his other items. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's already in solitary and been there for a long time for his own ag- advocacy. Um, and I know that um, Keith Malik Washington is another one in Texas that yep. a lot. I know the, the free Alabama movement folks. So kinetic justice, um, Ben, you, um, I know uh, Hassan in Ohio, um, which you've written about a number of times, Brian. Um, and, and so all of these people, there, there, are, there are people who are raised and they're often, they're usually not just political prisoners. I mean, and you can have, I, I kind of hate that dis- designation because I think everybody's a political prisoner if they're mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. but, um, but but there tend to be activists, right? That the state is actually actively repressing. And, you know, so one of IWOC's strategies is to support people calling in um, to, you know, and then they usually have scripts um, and you can find, you know, I know Prison Abolition, Prison Solidarity is one organization that has those. Um, IWOC does them. 
And, and IWOC it, is IWOC. Yeah, um, it's yeah the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee of the Industrial Workers of the World. And so, you know, basically the idea is to let as have as many people as possible call, you know, the state, the governor, the the wardens, and tell them, you know, hey, we're aware of what you're doing here. We want you to to back off and give them their typewriter back or whatever the situation is. You know, I, I mean, I think there's always a, like a little bit of danger that it's like it's putting more of a target on their back. But I think that the reality is like the target is there and they're within this tremendously repressive situation. And the more that people stand up and express some solidarity there, at least at least people know that there are people on the outside that that care about this individual, you know, and it just kind of puts the lens back on them a little bit. Um Absolutely. Which is important um, that they're the ones that are doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that another thing that people do, you know, which I think is great, actually, even though it's a small thing, is like noise demos outside of jails and prisons. And that happened um, in several places during the strike. And, And I think it's great because like if you can get outside of a prison and the prison can hear you as resistance is going on inside, it's it's it seems like a small thing, but like. I think that means a lot to a lot of incarcerated people if they see that type of solidarity from folks on the outside. And beyond that, like, again, it's this expression that sort of shows the jail or the prison or the detention center, like there's people on the outside that care about what's going on to people on the inside. So some of those things, like the impacts of those is hard. You know, I also think boycotts are interesting, but I think we have to get more strategic about boycotts if we're going to do them. You know, I think that you know, the prison guard issue at, at Holman was interesting during the strike in terms of the sort of like sick outs that started to happen there, you know, which is obviously very problematic because you really can't align the interests of uh, incarcerated people with uh, prison guards because they're, they're so antithetical mm-hmm. to one another. But I think that it is interesting. I mean, I think there's one of the things that we're seeing right now in a lot in response to a lot of resistance, right, is we need more guards. We need uh, more better systems of repression, basically. And I think the degree to which you can discourage people from even participating in that type of labor, you know, and, and trying to figure out a way to get them out of it into something else. And that labor, I mean, participating in, you know, being a prison guard, is good, I think, because reality is that even though that may make the conditions at that prison a little less good, you know, and they're horrible, it may make them worse in a sort of short term, prison has to become an unsustainable thing. That is, I think, an important piece of resisting it is, you know, it has to get smaller, it has to we're not going to abolish prison overnight as much as we would all like to and think that that's probably the best thing morally. It's not going to happen. And so anything that you can do to sort of whittle away the power and the control of the state, I think is good. And I think that, you know, I I saw somebody um, recently say something about how try to make an argument that more prison guards is better for prisons, you know, and I just, I fundamentally disagree with that, even though I recognize I'm not incarcerated, but I, you know, I just, I think that you have more officers of repression, uh, tighter control. And I think 
this is on a separate topic, um, but I just want to say something on this quickly because Kim reminded me of it earlier is, you know, in terms of thinking about things that the state does and types of work that they give prisoners, I think this is a particularly interesting piece. So in South Carolina last year, and I, I'm sure they're still doing it, but one of the things that jailhouse lawyers speak was speaking out against was that um, they would make certain prisoners or they would give certain prisoners the job of being guards themselves. So they would actually, which, you know, is illegal in most places is probably illegal in South Carolina where they were doing it, but they would actually like bestow guard duties upon incarcerated people. And if they refused to do it or they didn't do it well, then they would shut down visitation for the whole prison, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? And right. so they're basically, you know, creating this environment where you you have to become an agent of the state and against pitting prisoners against one another. I mean, it led mm -hmm. to people. It led to people getting stabbed. It led to fight. Um, of it's, course, it's their their own little Stanford prison experiment. Absolutely, prison, absolutely, you absolutely. Know? And it's and you said doing it well. I mean, defining yeah. well is being right. as oppressive as you possibly can. Yeah. Right? So coming up and concocting all sorts of ways to torture, yep. um, you know, your your fellow prisoners. And that's how they define well. Yep. Um, and I think that, you know, that that's a, uh, a really good point to uh, to to touch on, because, um, you know, the uh, what we see oftentimes in, you know, in response to not just prison rebellions, but any kind of resistance uh, behind bars is that, you know, the, the call for increased security, right? That more COs, more corrections officers will lead to, you know, better security, better conditions inside of prisons. Let's be real clear here. The conditions are shitty already. More yep. COs does not make that, improve that condition or those conditions, you know, by any stretch if anything what it does you know how they're defining they right not us right. are defining better conditions is to say that there are fewer disruptions or opportunities for people to organize and to resist the you know the the apparatus of you know oppression here right so yep. that's how they're defining you know better conditions Better conditions never has anything to do with responding to, you know, um, requests, demands right. of, you know, of, of prisoners. It never has anything to say about, you know, the human rights of prisoners. Everything becomes about what is good for the state, right? Yeah. And we, we saw this, you know, this past week with that report um, that we keep going back to, right? That, you know, it everything had to do with security, right? So of course, if you hire more people, more people, you know, to to do what, which is, you know, uh, your point, Jay. And yeah. I think that, you know, um, if we, you know, take this um, a little bit further, and we look at oftentimes where many of these facilities, these prisons, um, I got to stop saying facilities. Uh, it's, it's a horrible habit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but many of these prisons are located the way that these 
the communities, right, often rural communities, have been sold on the idea that, you know, the prison is a good thing for them economically, right, yeah. that it's going to provide jobs. But what we find in a lot of cases is, you know, a mismatch because many of the jobs are not occupied by people who live in a very surrounding community. In some cases, they are. But in a lot of cases, people are commuting you know, sometimes, you know, 40 minutes, an hour or more to get there just to work because there's nothing there and they don't want to live there, right? Yeah. So I think that there's, you know, when we're talking about that and I think that that's part of the bigger conversation on prison labor is we have the prisoners labor being, you know, used here um, and not to conflate the two, um, and then on the other side, you have, you know, COs, medical staff, and all of these other people. And I like what you said about, you know, discouraging people from taking these jobs, right? Um, the, yeah. Oftentimes, you know, it's like, like I, 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 I struggle with the idea of being a medical health professional working inside of a prison and doing things like, what was done to Maya's sister, right? Mm -hmm. Like forcing labor on someone. You mm -hmm. know, yeah, how do you I think do about that? it all the time. How do the you medical do that ethics. as a doctor? How yeah. do you do that as a doctor? How do you co-sign that kind of torture? Yeah. Right? And yeah, I mean, how as a, a medical professional do you even like do rounds in a prison, you know? I mean, and, and not object to the suffering in, of their environment that you're trying to treat them in the entire time. Um, the last thing that I just, you know, going back to Jay's point about dissuading people from working in these jobs, I think it's, you know, in service of that, it's important to point out that, um, you know, there have been studies that show people that work in, in correctional environments, um, corrections officers have high rates of suicide, of alcoholism, um, they don't have, you know, they generally have low to no benefits and wages. Like these are, these are toxic jobs. Um, and, and, you know, not to in any way compare the struggles of incarcerated people to their masters, but just in service of making these jobs obsolete. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just want to say thanks, Jay. Uh, yeah. I yeah. appreciate your, your input on this and uh, talking with you. And I look forward to many more conversations. Yeah, absolutely. It was great to be with you guys. And you can find Jay on Twitter at JBWare. We encourage you to read his piece on shadowproof.com entitled Lawsuit May Serve as Template for Challenging Forced Immigrant Labor in Private Prisons. Uh, as always, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at Beyond underscore Prison. You can follow me at B. Sonnenstein. And you can find Kim at PhillyProf03. Email us at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com and please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play. Thanks so much to everyone out there listening and thanks to Jay for speaking with us today. 